Welcome to this week's Boss to Boss podcast. In our interviews, we feature remarkable people doing imaginative things in often unimaginative markets, usually from the world of B2B. This week, we're joined by marketing heavyweight and industry legend, Richard Huntington, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Saatchi & Saatchi. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. I'm really, really excited to, to speak to you today. Fantastic. So just to kick off then, Richard, one of the things that you talked about was you described Sipsmith as an example of a brand, and I really like this this expression, that refused to accept the settled will of the market and instead took the category in quite a different direction, but principally through the kind of the stories that it told around the product. And it just got me thinking, in most B2B spaces where I see genuine disruption taking place, it tends to seem to come from like, real product innovation as opposed to stories around the product, if that makes sense. And I just wonder if that, if that in some respects, makes B2B a less attractive market to creative minds because it is more ultimately about the product and the features and the benefits as opposed to the, the stories told around the product. But maybe that's simply, it only seems that way because of a, a lack of good, good marketing. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that fundamentally believe that any conversation about any brand uh, or business organization service or product uh, uh, can be facilitated through storytelling and yes it, it, business to business the product matters fantastically but honestly the product matters everywhere i mean we i, be, I believe we have moved from a uh, from a world in which marketing broadly thought all products are, uh, are, are commoditized, all brands are commoditized, and therefore the only thing that we've got is the distinctiveness of a story or storytelling. And, and I think we're now in a world where business leaders, business owners, um, business buyers, consumers, we're, we're all, we all want to know what the what the truth is, why, why your product, I mean, if you're buying broadband, you should be told why your, your, your broadband is, is better than, than anybody else's. And, and I can't see any distinction uh, between a consumer market there and a, and, and a B2B market. I don't mean there's no distinction in, in what you say, but I don't believe there's a distinction in the, in the importance of the product story. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. I just, a related point and something else that I heard you talk about previously was, I think part of the problem in B2B is very often marketing has quite a narrow remit, sometimes literally almost like a support function to sales. Whereas in a lot of consumer brands, it feels to me like there's a broader remit, which again, maybe makes it a more attractive proposition to the best creative minds. I just wonder from your perspective, where should the boundary of marketing be drawn if indeed there should be a boundary well it depends i mean what's what's the who benefits from a boundary being drawn and we assume we're, we talk about a boundary between b2c and b2b but in whose benefit is it to draw that boundary so, so I guess what I mean is the, 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 the boundary of, of a marketer within an organization, like where does their remit finish? Because it feels like in a B2B organization, it's often quite narrow. Whereas in a consumer organization, as I say, often in many B2B organizations, it feels like they're really there just to kind of do the things that sales don't want to do. Whereas in a consumer brand, often it feels like they've got a much, much broader remit. And, and I wonder if that maybe also is part of the reason why it's a more attractive proposition to the most creative mind. So I wonder where, in your feeling, like, like where does the job end of a, of a marketer? 
great marketers are fundamentally changing their remit in terms of the relationship with the rest of the organization from the packaging up of the product and proposition to take to market, whether that's consumer or business, to the architect of what that organization should be the way in which that organization should be fundamentally serving its customers. And I think maybe we're making a distinction here between maybe brands and uh, companies as opposed to uh, consumer and B2B. And what I mean by that is, do you believe as a, a business owner, you, you, have a, you have a brand and you are taking a brand to market in which the products and services are concrete manifestations of what you, the way you want to serve? people or do you make something as a company you make something you're not that important what's important is the functionality of the something that you make and and really that's not marketing i mean you're, you, you, that that's the preparation of collateral to take a sales message to consumers and you know that that's just not marketing i, I don't believe marketing is not doing the coloring in the pretty pictures it's it's a fundamental discipline about how you serve your audience, how you serve your customers. And is there something in the leadership that you think tends to dictate? Because in my experience, there's a huge variety there, like like whether or not we we define it by B2B or B2C. Of course, that's a massive oversimplification, but there is a huge spectrum of those organizations where marketing seems to play a role in everything and those organizations where it does it seem to have a very, very narrow remit. Is it is it simply a question of of leadership? It can be. It can be a question of leadership. It can be a question of both. I think the uh, the origins of the CEO. We could we could argue that that CEOs with a marketing tradition uh, may well be stronger in in thinking or believing marketing has a significant role. You also find the opposite that somebody's been brought up in a marketing tradition when they get to that position is very keen to prove their their prowess in other uh, uh, parts of, of, of the operation. So that's not always the case. You we could have said I think in the past that there were some organizations that were more marketing and brand led and classically the fmcg giants like unilever and and png you would have said that that the 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 soul of those organizations is marketing as much as it's anything and in many organizations that's simply not the case so so uh, i think it's more like who's the leader where do they come from uh, is this a marketing oriented or where's the soul of this organization? If the soul of this organization is buying or the soul of the organization is, is, is engineering, you, you, you know, you, you find marketing placed in a, in a different way. And then, of course, there's the quality of the individual marketer because it's their ability to uh, win over the confidence of the rest of their board and the CEO um, that, that, is, that is the magical difference, I think, often. Uh, uh, and, and, and where I've got to in my life is, is I'm very uh, uninterested in a lot of these divisions. I mean, B2B, B2C. I mean, we've also got B2B, B2C to B. Uh, so uh, I'm more interested in there are, there are clients that are confident and clients that are unconfident, organizations that are confident yeah. and unconfident. And, and I think uh, marketing has this incredible role to create a climate of confidence within an organization. And when it does that, my observation is that uh, marketing takes a much uh, stronger role uh, and position of trust of that in that company. 
how how close does the marketer need to be to the product? Because I guess that's maybe in more complex organizations, maybe that can be a barrier if, if a marketer feels like they just don't get it at a product level. How, how important is that? How well can a marketer do their job if they don't fundamentally get the the kind of inner workings of, of the product? Fundamentally, we all, I mean, we're, we're just salespeople. I mean, we call ourselves marketers, of course, and it's slightly different to the, the direct sales tradition, but really we're just here to sell uh, things. And uh, it's a damn sight easier to sell something that you believe in, that you understand and that you believe in, then you don't. I've worked a lot in financial services. And I think a lot of marketers don't really understand uh, many of the uh, of the sort of more tricky parts of the financial services world. And I think that's that's almost disingenuous. It's like how how can you do that job unless you understand and believe in the product that you're selling? And uh, um, I, I, and I think that's true of of marketing inside organisations, and it's true of agencies as well. So while we may say that, you know, we're here to bring something additive, we're, about to, we're here to bring the outside world, a customer or client perspective, all of those good things. If you, if you don't understand the, the, the product, I think, and, and possibly some of the technicalities about why, I mean, I'm thinking, I work a lot in, in, in broadband, why the spectrum that, that E might have is better than the spectrum that O2 might have. It's helpful, that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, no, I completely agree. And I, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the best salespeople tend to, in my experience, tend to be pretty good marketers and vice versa. Um, I think they are two sides of, of the same coin. I mean, you, you spoke in one of the things I listened to previously. I heard you speak about the lost art of selling or, or words to that effect. I just wonder, are there any particular traits when you look at the best and i guess i'm particularly interested within a kind of creative agency context when you look at the most effective uh sales people are there any qualities that you you see them sharing is it selling i, I think that the phrase i wanted to use was salesmanship and I, and i and i regret that that's that's quite gendered uh, um but but i think what i'm more interested in let's put it to one side for the moment that this is an old fashioned phrase, quality of salesmanship as opposed to selling. I think we've got to the point where we believe selling is a, is a bottom of the funnel kind of activity. Uh, and of course selling is, is, is the entirety of the, of the funnel, however, hand gentle or um, light touch that salesmanship appears to be. And, and I think, you know, it's no surprise that, Someone like David Ogilvy was a door-to-door Argus salesman when he started out. I mean, and when I talk about the last art of salesmanship or selling, I think it's, it's people in our industry, and there's been a lot of debate about this recently, but people in our industry, particularly on the agency side, but also think in marketing, who, who don't have that, that sort of uh, visceral uh, love of the sale, and the sale isn't the cost per acquisition, and it's not simply the call to action or the zero moment of tr- truth or whatever it's it's everything that draws you inexorably towards a, a client or a customer making that decision so so i think one of the reasons that people in advertising in particular loved mad men wasn't simply the quality of mid-century design in the furniture and surroundings uh, or the fact that you seem to be able to drink throughout the day. And I think it was because there was a, 
there was a rawness about that was advertising when it when it thought it was it was about the art of salesmanship and it, and, it, and it is I know it sounds silly but it is worth looking at some of those sort of Don Draper classic pitches the, the Kodak example being the most famous because that's just pure salesmanship the way that an audience is being drawn it's like it's almost like he's on the doorstep you know from the moment he's rung the doorbell drawing you into in, 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 into that sale and I think that's what I regret that we've lost and I think that you know in, in lots of organizations, intermediate metrics can get in the way. So an organization that's more obsessed with the cost per acquisition than, than the profit that they're making. Uh, and agencies where they don't always understand. I mean, the big thing we always say is, do you understand how this client makes money? Like deep down, it's not, it's, it, you know, it, it's, not, it's not the sale of the original product it's a sale of it's the after sales service where they make the money or you, you know it's it, they make a loss on the acquisition but it's the it's the it's the renewal where the profit lies you know it's like i i so when i so, so i suppose i'm try, trying to get to an answer to your question but i think there's, there's deep curiosity about how the organization you work for agency or client side makes actually makes money and then uh, uh, an ability to tell a story about that product brand or service uh, that uh, that can can take somebody from I have no interest in you your brand product or service whatsoever to where do I sign is there almost an argument to say that um, it's a slightly unhelpful and again I'm going to a massively oversimplified picture but, but it's a slightly unhelpful distinction between sales and marketing because it seems to me that it it is they do exist to achieve the same end and the creation of this sort of false separation can lead to them chasing quite different performance metrics and then that creates maybe a slight lack of alignment i i, I just want to and again in the consumer world Particularly, you know, if you're an e-commerce brand, you probably don't even have a sales team, right? So you do have a sales team, but you call them your marketing team. Like it's all one thing. And I, I think sometimes this separation is 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 quite artificial and not terribly helpful. I think so. It's interesting what you, you say about about misaligned uh, KPIs or misaligned objectives. You know, maybe marketing teams that have no sight of the PL, um, which, which I think is you know, purely that are purely working on on intermediate or brand metrics. And don't get me wrong, intermediate metrics are desperately important to chart our progress or the progress of a consumer through through the funnel. But but we're all here to do one thing and that's and that's essentially boiled down to volume and value of, of sales. And I think the only distinction it might be worth making is that good marketers uh, and there's a huge debate here about the reduction of marketing to marketing communications. Good marketers are, are, are there to help the organization understand what product to sell, what price to sell it at, where to sell it at, where to sell it, not just in what communications channels, but literally distribution. Good marketing has always been about those things. Now, maybe we would say if I sat down with somebody who's a passionate person from from sales that they'd say well we're, we're at you know we're about the f- the kind of feedback loop from the end user that 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 dictates what product we make next or what iterative what step forward we make because but so, so maybe 
even that distinction is is artificial. What I do want to make there is just a a plea for for marketers who understand that, and for the rest of the organisation, frankly, to understand that marketers are more than marketing communications. That is about getting the right product in front of the the right customer at the right price, and all those good old school four Ps kind of things. Are there any red flags when you're having those early interactions where you're where you're looking for like reasons why maybe it just isn't going to fit because they perhaps do operate a certain way, they're structured a certain way, they do view the role of marketing in a certain way? Are there certain red flags you look for and you think, you know what, you know, all the very best, but this just isn't going to be for me? Whenever an agency, a good agency is engaging and thinking about a new client assignment, the things that are running through your head, particularly for, for people like us is, is there a clear commercial problem? Do they understand what their commercial problem is? Um, they may need some help identifying or diagnosing how to solve it. But, uh, you, you know, the, the worst thing in the world for, for a creative agency is a client that comes in and says either, um, you know, essentially, I, I need to fill some media space. Can I have some content, please? Yeah, or or on the other hand, sort of, which superficially looks n- nicer. I I want to create some. Oh, yeah, I mean, the classic one is I want to go to Cannes. You know, I cre- create me a Cannes campaign. You know, or, or a Super Bowl campaign. You're gonna go. I ca- you don't really understand how we work. We get we get there, but but we have to start with what is it that is wrong in your world? What is it that you need to be liberated from as a business? You know what. What problem am I supposed to be solving? Because even the most creative of creative people is fundamentally a, a problem solver. So I think those are the, the red flags. Clearly, an, an, uh, the ability to have a conversation with the business and say, to achieve those commercial ambitions, I need to have this these resources and I will deliver back to you more than, than the resources that you've given me. And I will deliver a positive ROI, but I need more resources to achieve that. If you, if it's a, it, yeah, the other thing is a sort of eyes bigger than than stomach. You know, like if if the alignment between there's no alignment between ambition and um, obligation, I think that's a problem. And then I I also try and sniff out people who this is going to sound very odd, but don't have the uh, don't really have the will to achieve the thing they want to achieve. You say that, but I don't believe when push comes to shove, you're going to have to, you're going to do the thing it's going to take. And my best example there is, is working with Direct Line Group uh, back in uh, the middle of the last decade, 2014, 2015. You know, the ongoing issue of their business, direct insurers' business being taken by price comparison websites. And you go, this is now so serious that I think I can solve this problem for you, but only if you're prepared to to take every every step that it would be that is required to do that. So so we ended up with quite an extreme solution. Doesn't seem like that in the end, but we used we used Harvey Keitel in his role as as Winston Wolf, you know, a gangland fixer as the face of an insurance company because that's what it took to to restart the commercial engines of of, of, of that brand. And so many marketers, when it push comes to shove, really haven't got that will. And I know I'm rambling now. My best example of, of that, uh, I had the misfortune to work on, it, it, amongst other agencies, on the Remain campaign in 2016 uh, for coalition of politicians. 
cross parties and and i don't believe they had the the they, they don't believe they i'm trying to find the right language um they were prepared to do what it would take to actually win does that make sense so sniffing out whether clients have got what are prepared businesses are prepared to do what it will take to win that's the that's the real that's the real deal or whether it's just a, a marketing team that like to see a one percent added to the you know revenue next year no i i completely get it and but does that, in a sense, make it easier to work with maybe kind of like smaller startups in some cases because they come with less baggage and they have less to lose? Whereas I guess if you're working irrespective, whether it's B2B or consumer, if you're working with an organization that's been around 50 years, they have a lot to lose by making mistakes. By In a sense, kind of they may feel they're overstretching themselves or they're taking too much of a risk creatively. I'm not going to love that distinction. Yes, startups uh, have a clean she and they're often coming in with a challenger mentality um and uh and often you know without a legacy book without a legacy technology they can more easily you know like a neobank can can much more easily sort of offer the right uh, you know user experience or customer experience um than a legacy bank for all sorts of structural reasons um but actually i think Great marketers who take their responsibility to their brand seriously and are prepared to do what it will take uh, c- c- can can achieve extraordinary things in legacy businesses. And I'm thinking definitely what we did with Direct Line. We worked with British Heart Foundation, extraordinary marketing leader uh, there, Claire Sadler, who who I think you know has got her sights set on how do I transform the. In donation income of this charity and what will it take to do that and and i think uh so i i you you meet you meet founders and you and you meet people who marketers working in enormous uh publicly quoted co- companies and, and it's it 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 makes no difference in some ways in fact sometimes founder-led organizations can be horrific to work with because the entire brand of business is in the head of the founder and you spend your entire time either trying to double guess them or literally writing down their vision uh, which is which is which is great for them uh, but there's it's less obvious where an agency can add value if that if that makes any sense yeah no, it completely does. So I guess ultimately it's about the individual. It's not about the category or the the um, the size of the organisation. Some brands and businesses innately attract because of their the quality of their product, perhaps, or the the, the their their um, the legacy of marketing attract a body of good marketers. Mm. Uh, but I, th- I do think marketing leadership is you know the quality of the CMO is critical. Really interesting example of that was. Um, one of the first ever interviews I did about eight, nine years ago now was with a <clears throat> chap called Elliot Moss, who um, was from a marketing agency background and uh, became the the head of marketing for Mishkondorea and obviously no legal background. But he, in a sense, he made the entire brand about marketing um, and he was, you know, he poked his nose into every, every last, you know, corner of that law firm and um, made them absolutely obsess over questions that conventionally, I guess, law firms wouldn't have obsessed over. And it probably wasn't a coincidence that they were then the fastest growing law firm on the planet for the five or six years that that followed. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess ultimately it, it's about the people. 
whatever we were doing as a, as a, you know, as a, as a community of marketers, agency and client side, I think the only thing that matters right now is growth, you, you know, like perhaps not in the way that the previous incumbent at number 10 thought growth should be delivered, but we're, there, there's no disagreement that we need growth. We need growth in our economy. We need growth uh, for our businesses and we need to find those sources of growth. And I think what's so fan, fascinating about that case study is, is, if you if you go into a, a law firm and and say uh, I, I know marketing seems at, at odds with what you do, but this business needs growth, and, and my job is to find out how to do that. Whether that's a, you know, pursuing different, I know nothing about this, but different sorts of clients, different sorts of cases, you know, um, expanding into new areas where the the law is making a difference, like that. That's a that's a classic marketer's role, I think. I, th I think I think one of the the issue of growth there is an interesting one because something else I've uh, noticed with those companies really disrupting uh, very established markets like the legal sector, um, those you know whether we call them startups or otherwise, but it is they have a different attitude around growth versus profit extraction, and the very fact that the really big firms. They because they might have had partners in the organisations that have done their 20, 30 years, and they are now in a position where they want to, you know, make hay while the sun shines. That is their personal priority. Whereas a startup organisation is, in a sense, kind of like they're not they're not hidebound by that, and actually they may well have like a five year plan where like there is no profit. It is purely about growth, and that is a that is such a different attitude that just makes it very very difficult for the incumbents the, the established organizations to really compete and as a consequence there are certain you know verticals within those markets that have just been you know totally turned on their heads within a two or three year period but again that's that's a question of i guess attitude and, and leadership rather than necessarily you know organizational size or anything else something else you spoke about which i personally found extremely interesting it struck quite a chord was you spoke about um tools and coping mechanisms uh, that you'd developed as, uh, I think you put it, an, an introvert in a, an extrovert's world or, or words to that effect. Um, as a as a fellow introvert, you know, in the same world, uh, um, I, I, I just, yeah, I'd be fascinated to hear of any of those, any of those tools, if you are happy to, to share them. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge subject. And I was actually having a chat with somebody uh, the like a couple of days ago saying she, she was, she was starting to feel like, uh, it, it, introversion was becoming a sort of social piece of social capital that in a sense I've, I've always grown up in an environment where to be extrovert was it was was amazing and I tried to convince myself for years that my Myers-Briggs was not quite what it, what it suggested I was that I was a true extrovert uh, and she, and I thought it was interesting the way the pendulum is perhaps has perhaps swung um, um, but 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 to true introverts, and I think what we're talking about are people who take their energy from time uh, alone or in small groups of people who, who, who find it difficult to do, you know, um, to, to do small talk, who find uh, large groups of people exhausting. Uh, my wife has a phrase, which is, is she gets introvert hangovers, like the next day having been really sort of out there, having to sort of uh, uh, kind of... Kind of uh, deal with some of the way that that extracts energy from you whereas the extroverts of course that's the that's the that's the channeling other people is the source of energy i i think uh, to to talk about coping mechanisms i i think um some 
I think understanding all of that is really important. Understanding that that in lots of ways, as an introvert, you might prefer to do a a, a presentation to two hundred people. That sounds counterintuitive, but a presentation to two hundred people means you, you you know you don't you don't have to sort of spend your time trying to win over everybody like an extrovert would want to. You you can sort of see this as an impersonal audience. Uh, so actually, some in some ways, it, you should be allowing yourselves a a, 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 um, a sort of canvas that's that's perhaps bigger than you imagine it is. It isn't all about you know high quality one to one conversations. I think um, when you do need to be like that, uh, putting uh, putting on a mask, putting it sounds like you're 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 putting on something that isn't you. But but what I found it is increasingly well, it's, it's really super important is just the ability in any situation however i'm feeling to don some sort of kind of clothing that allows me to, to 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 show up in a slightly different way and i think it's one of the reasons why often people say to to high performing introverts you know I, don't be ridiculous you can't possibly be like that you know you're you're so you're incredibly gregarious or you know you, you seem really confident and i don't think that's they're not aligned, if you see what I mean. I think the the other thing is um, is just introverts take a lot of solace from self esteem rather than self confidence. You know, it may well be that that you you suffer from doubt and 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 periodic lack of self confidence. I think if you if you believe in yourself, then you get through. And there's a phrase I learned from an ad man called Peter Mead years ago, which is people say you need the courage of your conviction, but if you've got conviction, you don't need courage. So I think that's a sort of really unhelpful tour through some some thoughts that really would be better expressed as a book. But but uh, but I think um, I think I think it's an it's an interesting time to be an introvert because because it, it, I think understanding how to channel it and use it well is 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 kind of new. And do you think it's maybe easier now, either because it's easier to talk about it, or and also because maybe certain there are certain channels available that maybe do align themselves more to that kind of personality. I don't know. Like, do you think like have you like in the course of your career have you noticed any any change? Hundred percent. Like. Uh, I've run a blog. I mean, that's a that's a throwback piece of technology. I've run a blog for uh, nearly twenty years. Uh, so I started in two thousand and five, and 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 that 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 the internet at that stage, and then I think what essentially became microblogging. If you used Twitter, I think from from a marketing point of view, it became essentially micro microblogging. You know, stuff that really didn't warrant a post, but was nonetheless interesting and. Uh, I think those were amazing ways for people who were useless. No, that's not fair. Who really hate networking, really hate showing up in a room where they don't know anybody and uh, to, to start to have a place in the world. And, and, and it's no surprise. I mean, I had an, essentially I gave myself a different name o- online for a while, which is the hash, the, 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 um, the, the, the handle ad literate, because I was creating almost a, an alter ego. Now that that's been aligned subsequently, but but without a doubt, I think some of those Web two point zero technologies were incredibly important for for people to express themselves. And I, I think we're talking here about introversion and extroversion, sort of binary sense. But I think it it is simply that we are becoming more aware of neurodiversity, diversity, full stop, and neurodiversity. And the need for organizations and industries to 
to harness the, um, the, the, the qualities of everybody because everybody's got a contribution to make. And I think it was a mistake when we believed that organizations or, or industries like advertising, you know, had to have a sort of monoculture in order. You had to, I suppose you had to, um, you had to uh, occupy the monoculture in order to succeed. And, 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 and that's a huge, I think it's a huge journey that we've been on. And it's almost now, apart from growth, the, the primary um I, I think the primary uh, objective of any industry right now is figuring out how we harness diversity in every single dimension, because that's what makes us better at our jobs. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, I also always wonder how on earth did people at networking events used to avoid making eye contact if they couldn't pretend to stare at their phone and, and check their emails for the 17th time in in as many minutes um, or maybe that's maybe that's just me um, <laughs> i'm a big phone user I don't, I, and i genuinely don't i think i just didn't go to them i think i just sat, sat at home and watched telly uh, and and i think for a lot of people when our when 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 business is done in those forums alone I think that's part of the problem. We ended up with the monoculture that, that we see across the business world, because there was a, there were there was soft there was a soft culture that was policed. I mean, this is a totally different issue, but but after hours drinking in the pub is a is a soft culture that was policed in advertising for years and years and years, and it's not that helpful. Interesting, interesting. And you've seen a big. Ch- I mean, certainly, I've, I've, I feel like I've seen a change. I mean, it's very rare now that if we, if we do go to, to, um, to a pub, you know, late afternoon, early evening. I mean, it's, it's eighty percent of the drinks are soft drinks, and people are generally sort of going off to do their own thing at six o'clock. And I don't know, like, I feel, sometimes I feel like it's something's lost a little bit. Like, if I'm honest, some, like a little bit of me feels that way. But then I also think a lot is gained as well. Like, I don't know. I guess, I guess there's two sides yeah i mean I mean, that's just cultural progression in, in in lots of ways i mean i would you know i would hate to lose some of that conviviality and particularly given we've been through a period of time where we weren't able to do that you know and i love being back live with with agency colleagues with clients you, you know feeling the visceral rub of of agency life and, and doing business i think the issue is that socialization or if the that cannot that socializing cannot be the defining reason why a deal is done why somebody gets promoted why somebody gets a pay rise nobody's yeah. saying don't go down to the pub we own a, a, a pub at sarchi's have done for years called the pregnant man uh, always say, and, and go and knock yourselves out after work and have a brilliant time it serves the third best espresso martini in london but <laughs> but be under no illusion that it's a means by which business is done that's that's what I mean, I think. Absolutely. But that's awesome. Look, thank you so much, Richard. I knew this was going to be brilliant and it's, it's exceeded those, those expectations. So no, thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed it. Really appreciate your time.